Hi there. Well, we're almost at the end of the semester, so sort of winding down on some of this, but at the same time coming to some really important parts for you to know as a future leader and therefore communicator. And as a leader, you need to be strategic. So that's what we're talking about. Uh, there are a couple of things this week in addition to the communication part of this, but you are going to be working on a strategic vision. And there's some information at the end of this podcast and in the slides that you and your group should use to put together that strategic vision document for your final plan. Talking, though, about strategic leadership and thinking about the idea, and I still love the title of this book, that leadership is language, and it really is because we lead by talking with and listening to people. There are some concepts from the rest of the book. Um, after you've read the first four chapters, going forward, it, it has some concepts that I think are really important and relevant, and I'm going to highlight those in this podcast and in the slides. Those that really, from my own personal experience in business and as a leader, make the most sense and really do come down to how you act and how you speak when you're working in, with, or leading a team. One of those concepts is the idea of commitment versus compliance. And this has to do with leadership as well as just the way you live your life. The thinking about when you have a job to do, when there's something in front of you that needs tackling, not literally, of course, don't run into people, but the idea of being motivated by what's inside of you and your own desires versus being motivated by what somebody else told you to do that you may feel you have no ability to resist comes down to commitment versus compliance. If you really dig into the meaning of those words, you know, pick up a dictionary and look them up, you'll get that commitment comes from within. When you commit to something, that's a decision you have made. <laughs> Think about when we joke about people who have a fear of commitment, who don't want to get into a long-term relationship, that's all about a decision internally to say, I'm going to stick with this or with this person. This is something that is about your desire to reach a certain goal. Compliance means you're doing what somebody else told you to do. Generally, somebody who's in a leadership position, a position of authority, or who has some other kind of power over you, that's when somebody tells you what to do and you comply. It isn't necessarily your goal. You might agree with them, but the urge, the push to do it comes from outside you as opposed to within. This week, think about that as you are doing work for this class or any other class, think about how you are feeling about what you're doing. Is it something you have committed to doing? It might be that you say to yourself, I'm going to do a really good job on this because I don't do mediocre work. I don't let my teammates down. I am the kind of person who does this thing and I believe in this and I'm going to do it to the very best of my ability. If on the other hand, you're tackling the projects for this class or any other class and maybe feeling yourself saying, I can't do this. I can't possibly do what they're asking me to do. Obviously, you're feeling a sense of a need to comply with something that someone else is telling you to do. 
I'll get into some of the details of this, how, for instance, having an assignment for a class can be something you commit to as opposed to complying with in a second here, but you can also talk to yourself about what you want to accomplish in any case where there's something you need to get done, whether somebody else told you to do it or you have set yourself a goal. It matters how you are looking at that and what you decide to do. So you can have a sense of mission about any project or any job or any relationship. And this is all about that red work versus blue work that we talked about last week. When you commit to something, you're going from the red work, from you know putting a part on another part on an assembly line over and over again, to the blue work part of things where you are saying to yourself, okay, I have to do this job. I can do it this way or that way. I can do it really well just to satisfy myself and my own sense of excellence, or I can do what's necessary and get by because I have to comply. Now, I will say it's important to note that there are times when compliance is important. With rules that keep you safe, compliance matters. And, and very often you just, you have to get a job done, so you do it. Um, you know, you should comply, for instance, with the directions your doctor gives you. You have to take medication every day at a certain time. Compliance is important, but it's also for you. So, so sometimes it isn't either or, sometimes both things are there. And I think actually assignments for a class are a good example of that. But the commitment part means that whether or not someone else has told you to do something, you can determine how you're going to approach that task. You choose a course of behavior, whether it's just doing the bare minimum to get by because you need to pass the class, or it's doing it as best you possibly can, turning in the most excellent work because that makes you feel good about yourself. That's commitment. Compliance, especially in the workplace, is where all you do is what you're told. No more, no less. You just do what you're told. That's compliance. We've all done that. We've all felt that. It's just compliance. When you are interested in growing as a person, then you commit to something and you learn while you're doing it. Think about a time when you had a job to do. Maybe you had a job, uh, an internship or a summer job, and it was in something you really hadn't done before or there were some parts of it that were unfamiliar to you. When you commit, you say, I, I want to learn about this. I want to learn more about this. I really want to, how is it that this is done? How how is this different and what do I need to know and how could I do it even better than they expected? That's commitment. And that's also the mindset of improving versus just proving. You're not just saying, yes, see, I did it. You're saying, I did it and I did it in this different way that actually made it go faster or made the result better or I just wanted to make it better. Blue work is when you're looking at something that you have to do and you have committed to learning while you do it and maybe doing it better than somebody else ever could have. Or maybe just you've committed to learning more about this new thing. That's where you are combining the blue work of thinking and learning and improving with the red work of doing and proving. So yes, you can do both at the same time, but commitment matters because it will 
it will generally mean you've learned something and are learning something and that you're interested in continuing to learn. It will also mean that you'll be happier about what you do because you have committed to doing it the best you possibly can. If you're leading people, there are ways to commit when you're meeting as a group and trying to decide how to get a certain task done that could allow you as a leader to let someone else on your team determine a new way to do something. This is incredible leadership and I hope that as you find yourself starting a career or continuing a career, beginning a new career, that you either can be this leader or work for someone who is. Because when you have a leader who isn't afraid to let other members of the team say, you know, we've never done it this way, but what if we did this? And as a leader, you say to yourself, you know, it's different and I don't know what's going to happen, but what's the worst that could possibly happen? Okay, maybe it slows us down. Maybe we arrive at our goal a week behind. If that won't really affect the outcome of your business and isn't going to harm anyone, then you might say, let's try it and see. As a leader, you should still be learning too. Nobody says that a boss should know everything because no one in the world knows everything. So if you're a boss, you can still learn. And if you commit to supporting a decision your group has made, that isn't the same as agreeing with the decision. It just means that you've said, you know, let's see what happens. I will commit to supporting you. I'm hesitant, but I believe in you. And I think we should try that. There's a difference there. If you get it, you, you know what I mean by commitment versus compliance, and leaders can comply too. The idea is you can support someone, you can commit to supporting the efforts of your team, even while you disagree with the idea. And yes, if it works out, you can change your mind and admit that, hmm, you know, this was better. Another way to commit as opposed to complying, and sometimes you comply with your own inner bad decisions is to chunk these decisions and go back to the El Faro for this one. You remember how they set off from Jacksonville heading straight for San Juan, Puerto Rico. The captain had a direct line for a course that was planned and that would be the quickest way there, which of course for a container ship is important because you don't get paid by the hour when you're the captain of a container ship, you get paid by the load. So the quicker he gets it to port, the quicker he gets paid, the quicker the company gets paid, the happier they are. Unfortunately, in the case of the El Faro, the direct route didn't work out so well. And there were two points along the route where the captain could have changed direction, literally and figuratively. And in fact, he knew that and some of the crew were kind of indirectly and delicately trying to suggest that the captain make a decision to do this, but those were chunks of decision-making that could have changed the outcome of that trip. The first decision point was just outside Jacksonville when they could have headed south instead of straight southeast and gone behind the wind through the Bahamas, there was a second decision point when they were halfway through the Bahamas and, and in the Caribbean and the captain could have decided to head south again and get underneath and behind the wind and away from the hurricane. 
So if you chunk your decisions, if you say, you know, this next project we're taking on is going to take a month, but I want to make sure that two weeks in, we take another look and see if maybe there's something we could do that would change the course of things, or maybe, you know, we've got a six-month project, and every month, let's take a look at how things are going to decide if we want to stay on this course or go a different way. Those are chunks. Nobody says when you head off on a road trip and you have determined that in going from North Carolina to California, you're going to take Route 40 the whole way and not stop. Nobody says that somewhere along the way, if a storm hits, you can't stop and stay in a hotel. Nobody says you can't decide to go off on a really scenic route because you've never seen that part of the country before and you want to take a look. There is nothing keeping you from your commitment in that you can commit to getting from North Carolina to California and still along the way say, okay, I'm still going to get to California, but I'm going to do it a little differently. You haven't uncommitted. You haven't defied your commitment. You're still committed to a course of action, but you can change the way you get there. You've committed to reaching a goal. That doesn't mean the way you reach that goal can't change. Because if you are so committed to a specific course, like the captain of the, of the El Pharaoh was, you might ignore the changes that you need to make when circumstances and the situation change. So if you are on a course of action and you have committed to it, watch out for this idea of the escalation of commitment. If things aren't working, don't ignore them. Don't turn it off. Don't say, you know, no, I said I was going to do this. I was going to get from X to Y in this amount of time. Don't ignore the hurricane when it's heading toward you. It isn't indecisive or weak to say, you know, there's a hurricane heading for us, and I think it'd be better if all the people on this ship live through that. It's okay to say that. Don't let the commitment keep you from seeing what else is going on and that circumstances have changed. That's really what it comes down to. Commitment isn't about, I'm going to stay on this course. Commitment is, I'm going to accomplish this goal. When you are a part of a team, that commitment should, in fact, generate engagement with your team. You're working with a team. You have all these minds right there with you, in front of you, engaging with you. Listen, solicit ideas, ask people, how could we do this better? How could we test this idea we have quickly and cheaply? If you think maybe there's another way to do this, okay, let's see. How could we do that? What would be the best way to find out if that would work? The questions to your team should actually propose a commitment. Say, okay, yeah, you know, I'm willing to try that. Let's figure out how to do it. Try not to be dictatorial when you're a leader. Try to encourage and ask questions of your team. And then the thing that is incredibly important that we ignore so often, just in life, not just as managers or bosses or team leaders, but we need to remember to stop and celebrate. You should do this. Every time your group finishes a part of this project that you're working on for this class, every time you as a student, as a person, complete a task that was tough or important, or you do something really, really well, stop, take a breath, celebrate, acknowledge your accomplishments because life is short. And if you don't celebrate when you've done something, you won't really ever feel like you've done anything. In fact, one of the best examples of that is the idea of working on an assembly line. When you come into work every day and it's always the same and it never stops, 
you're just putting a piece on a part and passing it along and putting another piece on the same part and passing it along over and over again. There's never a sense that you have finished. That can have a real impact, negative impact on your state of mind. You never feel like you've finished anything because it just keeps coming and you just keep going. There are companies that have recognized this really good, well-led companies where there's an assembly line where you're putting stuff together and getting it out every day, where there's a new model that you start. And so when you finish the old model, you're going to start the new model. The whole team gets to stop and celebrate and say, okay, we've done that. We did a good job on that. We're going to start this new thing. And here's how long that's going to last. Give people a good sense of a timeline. Find those chunks in your decision-making in which you can stop and say, hey, let's do this. You guys have been doing a great job and you just finished the first part of our contract. Always try to find places where there is a completion of something that you can celebrate, an accomplishment that you and your whole team can stop and take a breath and smile and have a cup of coffee or go out for cake or have lunch together to say, good job, folks. You need that. If you don't ever celebrate accomplishments, you'll feel as if your life really hasn't meant much. Celebrate your accomplishments. Whenever you finish a project or even just a stage of a project or a part of a project, stop, take a breath, smile, and celebrate what you have accomplished. That's going to make an enormous difference. And when you're a leader of a team, Reward the people on your team for doing a good job. Make sure that they know that you recognize their individual efforts. So point to each member of your team. I mean, not literally pointing your finger is rude, but call out every member of your team and say, hey, Alex, very nice work. I really appreciated how you wrote that up. It was clear, decisive, easy to understand. Listen, Joan, absolutely fantastic work on the graphics. You really did a terrific job. I love the colors you used. Call out specifics, say thank you, reward, celebrate. When you do that as a leader, you would be surprised, amazed at how much loyalty you'll get back and how much harder your employees will work when they know that you see what they're doing, when they recognize that you see them. So when you are celebrating, appreciate a person's efforts. Don't evaluate them. I mean, you have to do that in order to determine things at the end of certain pay periods, but don't say, gosh, that's really better than you've ever done before. There's there's a phrase called damning with faint praise, and that's what that is. Instead of saying, wow, I didn't know you could do this, say, this is wonderful work, really nice job. Don't qualify it. And observe, that's kind of the same thing. Observe what someone has done. Say, I saw the way you did that. That was fantastic, really good work. Don't say, wow, that's better than I thought you could do. Remember to prize what people are doing. Say, I saw that, that's fantastic. That's an entirely new way to do that. I don't think anybody ever thought of that before. You are amazing. Don't make it sound like you're comparing the work someone's done this time with what they did before and saying it's better than that, because then you are saying you didn't do such a great job before. If somebody finds a new way to do things, look forward, say that is going to make an enormous difference for us. Good work. Thank you. Focus on people's behavior. Don't focus on 
what they are. Uh, the book talks about uh, experiments, and there are quite a few of these, but one particular one where where children were evaluated, this, this experiment where children were told, wow, you're really smart when they were putting a puzzle together. You're so smart. And then they were given the choice of trying a more challenging puzzle or one that was just the same as the one they just finished. The kids who were told, wow, you're really smart, didn't want a more challenging puzzle because they were afraid that they might not do such a great job on that one and then they wouldn't be smart anymore. So when the kids were instead told, you worked really hard on that. I saw that. You really put a lot of time into that. Good work. Then you're recognizing behavior and those kids were more likely to try a more challenging puzzle because they understood that working hard and making an effort was the important part. So don't evaluate someone for the static existence of who they are. Evaluate someone based on what they've done and what they can do and what they will do. Incentivize people you work with and who work for you to keep trying more challenging tasks. That's how you grow. That's how they grow. That's how things get better. That's how companies innovate. When people tell you their stories about accomplishment, when somebody says, I did this really fantastic thing, I put together this project, I created a, a brief on how to do it, and then I put a program together and it worked, ask them about that. Ask, how did you do that? What steps did you take? What hurdles did you overcome? What inspired you? You can always learn. The biggest bosses, the highest CEOs, the highest paid owners of companies can still learn. You never stop learning, hopefully, because life is full of stuff to learn from. And if you turn it off, you're going to miss a lot. So make sure that you are always listening to your employees and focusing on things that could be different and better. Uh, the, the example of the movie Frozen, I think, is really relevant, especially since pretty much all of us have seen Frozen, because they had hit that that wall where Elsa was supposed to be this evil sister and really bad in comparison to her sweet, wonderful, you know, good sister. And the team didn't like that idea. They didn't want Elsa to be evil. And they talked about sisters and their relationships to each other and how that could be different. And their producer didn't say, no, stop. We're going to do the evil thing. Stick with an evil Elsa. That's what we started out to do. That's what we're going to do. I don't want you changing things. Instead, the producer said, okay, so how could we do that? What would we want to see on the screen? What would it be like? Tell me about how you envision this. That's a leader. When your people say, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think this is working. Instead of saying, I don't care. Shut up. This is what I told you to do. You say, okay, talk to me about that. Tell me how it could be. What would it look like? That's leading. And that again comes down to language. You can shut people down by saying, just comply with what I said, where you can open them up and get wonderful results and much better stuff and learn yourself by saying, okay, well, I support you. If you think that's a better way to do things, wonderful. Let's talk about how to do that. Opening up, listening, learning, and committing to supporting the people you work with and for makes all the difference in the way you'll approach life and can make an enormous difference in the result of work you're doing with a team. So when do you do this, right? When do you stop and improve? Remember those chunks. There are 
pretty much always in any kind of project, chunks. You've been doing that for this class. Every weekly assignment is a chunk. You can stop and say, you know, now that we've worked on the strategic vision, I look back at our mission statement and I think we ought to rewrite that. You can do that. You absolutely can do that. Until you turn in the final project, all of those things can be tweaked, improved, uh, added to, edited. So every time there's a chunk and you stop because you finished it and you're celebrating, you might also say, let's, you know, this came out so well, I want to revisit the rest of it and let's, let's take off in a slightly different direction. Another time to stop, a really obvious time ought to be whenever there's a real error, when something goes wrong, you want to stop and say, wait, whoa, let's not keep going because we could have more problems. What happened? How do we fix this? Should we change direction like the El Faro could have done? Um, there are other examples in, in workplaces. You probably have some of your own while you're hearing this. You might be thinking of them. For me, having worked in and with healthcare providers for a long, long time before I became a professor, I will say that when nurses and doctors change shifts in hospitals, that's a time to stop and reflect and improve. Whenever shifts end, shift ends, the nurses particularly, but the doctors also, will talk with the folks who are coming in for the next shift about each patient, how they're doing, what was done, uh, how that seemed to affect them, so what medications they got, what procedures were done. And it might be that the next shift will say, okay, well, that's good to know, but it doesn't seem like they're getting better. All right, we know they got this much of this medication. Maybe we should up this one and give them less of that. Those are chunks. Those are decision points when you can change things as a, as a project or a treatment or process is ongoing. There are always points when you can stop and get better. So again, a lot of this is about this idea of kind of a stagnant compliance, being who you are and not changing versus getting better and learning. Think of two selves. There's the be good self. This is the you that is good and is going to be good and just stays in that place. And it's fine. There's nothing wrong with being good. But if you have been told you're good, told you're smart, you may feel like anybody who's questioning you is challenging how smart or good you are. And you might get defensive. You don't want to change because they just told you you were smart. Why would you do something different? If you're smart, you should just keep doing what you were doing, right? And also, if you are being good, somebody told you you were smart, and now they want you to do something different, that might affect your self-esteem, your reputation. You might fear trying something new or making a change because you won't feel nearly as confident and people might see you differently. That's that stagnant, be good self versus the get better self which is where you want to learn new things. You want to grow and you are supported in that. Nobody says, don't change you, we're doing it just fine. They say, okay, that was really good. Let's see what else we can do. So that person, the get better self, is the one that's curious, interested in other things, intrigued by challenges. You wanna see what else you can do. You like to try new things. It's difficult if that's not your natural personality to make yourself be curious and try new things. You might try it out in little ways first, you know, try new food, see if you like it. But it's so important as you go through life to be willing to try something new, to be willing to change. And it can make such a difference in whether you commit or just comply. One of the things that can really hang you up when you're trying to Trying to do blue work, really, when you, you know that it's time to think carefully and be creative, 
is the use of heuristics. You've probably heard that word before. If you haven't, essentially heuristics are the things that we have actually deduced before. They sort of are the product or the result of earlier blue work where we did something a certain way and maybe that didn't work and we did it a different way that worked or we looked something up once and we said oh okay well if i use this way of putting in my citations that will always work and that's just fine and not bothering to find out that this professor likes a different citation style or not bothering to inform yourself about something new because it's a lot like a thing you did before so you just go with the old thing. That's essentially what happens when we use heuristics. We all like to search for patterns. You know, if you ever like true crime stuff, trying to figure out who the bad guy is and what they did and how they did it, playing Clue. Those are heuristics. We like to look for patterns and make decisions based on them. It's comforting. It feels like we are researching. It feels like we have a reason for doing the thing we do. So we stick with what has worked before. An example I use in the slides is maybe, and this is almost just you know the lucky thing, but it's sort of heuristics. If when you write a paper on your desktop computer, assuming you still have one, a lot of people don't, but pretend you do. If you use the desktop and you're writing it on that, and you get a good grade on the paper and you feel like, you know, when I use the desktop computer, I'm thinking differently or it's easier because I have everything right where I need it. Okay. You might say to yourself, consciously or unconsciously, you know, I'm going to write a better paper if I do it on that computer than if I do it on my laptop in a coffee shop. When in fact, that might have nothing to do with it. It could be that you did really well on that paper that day because you were in a good mood, because you got enough sleep, because you ate well before you sat down to write but there's something that seemed like a pattern to you and you see that pattern and you say, okay, that means this, therefore I will always do it this way. The pattern might be real, but it isn't necessarily. And we tend to bias toward reusing things that seemed logical and seemed based on patterns because it feels like cause and effect. It may not be, but it feels real it worked for us then, so we keep using that heuristic over and over again because it worked before. It's a bias. There are lots of biases that we all have, and I'm not talking here about the more serious biases like racism, sexism, ageism, uh, classism, any of those things. I'm not talking about isms here. I'm just talking about cognitive biases that pretty much everyone has in one way or another. If you're aware of them, they're a little easier to avoid but we tend to do them, all of us. The one that I'm talking about here where we talk about first impressions is called anchoring bias. That's where the first time something works for you, you tend to think that the way you just did it is the way to do it. And so you always do it that way, which maybe it'll work for you, but what you haven't allowed yourself to consider is that there might be another even better way to do it or that trying it a different way isn't necessarily bad and maybe in fact trying it a different way and finding out that the first way worked better will just confirm for you that okay yes that way worked there are two thinking systems involved here and daniel kahneman who was referenced in the text and whom i have read several things from including the book thinking fast and slow which the text also cites he's terrific if you're curious about the way we all think and why we do what we do really recommend the book. It is not like an academic text. It's written accessibly and, and in a sort of fun way. But Daniel Kahneman talks about the two ways we think, systems one and two. 
System one is like red work. It's primitive. It's instinct, emotion, impulse. It's fast. It's the stuff that, you know, we would think of as being going with our gut where we say, you know, I'm not quite sure why I think I should do this thing, but I can't come up with a reason why not. And right now if it's really important and I need to do it, so I do it. Sometimes it works. You know, some people talk about their, their gut instincts being really good. And sometimes, sometimes they are. But sometimes if you have the time, system two is a better bet. System two is where you take your time, you be rational and not emotional, you're being thoughtful, you're trying to be aware of your biases. Maybe I've always done it that way just because I've always done it that way. Maybe there is a better way. It's taking time, taking a breath, going a little slower, and considering what you're going to do. Again, if you think about it, just the way I'm talking here and the way these two systems are described, it feels more important. It feels like you've accomplished something to go with system one, act on your instincts, go with your emotion, work with your impulses, fast, determinative, yeah, doing something. It's kind of, you know, like fast and furious, right? You're doing something but you might do the wrong thing if you haven't stopped to think about it. Examine your options, consider your potential biases, and be thoughtful and rational. It never hurts. As long as we're not talking about a crisis, you know, the ship is sinking and you need to decide whether you bail. As long as you have the time, thinking very often is a good option. When you think about red work and blue work, Red work is that system one thinking. Another bias that comes up with system one thinking is something called overconfidence bias. That's where you've succeeded before, maybe at different things, enough different things that you think you're just really good at everything. You're pretty sure that since you succeeded at this and that, and they're very different, and there was the other third thing that was also different, that you're just good at everything. That's overconfidence bias. When you try something new, it doesn't hurt to be confident. Overconfident can get you in trouble. This is also the mindset that says we protect ourselves. So we do what we know works. We just keep doing it because it works. It's worked before. It's worked several times before. I want to get this done. Let's do it. You are protecting yourself. You're protecting your reputation. You're protecting yourself against people who might say, well, why are you taking so long? System one thinking, fast, overconfident. Blue work is system two thinking. That's where we're more focused on learning and doing better and not just doing. There's doing and there's doing better. Blue work is also indicative of what you could call a prove mindset. So you're not trying to protect yourself. You're not doing CYA. You're trying to make sure that what you're doing really is the right thing and the best thing to do. And again, this is where you don't ask yes or no questions. You do ask questions, which system one thinking tends not to do. But what you ask are things that will get qualitative answers. What are we missing? Not are we missing something, but what are we missing? What could go wrong? Again, not could something go wrong, but what could go wrong? That's where you're provoking thought in the people you lead. You're trying to find out what you haven't thought of because trust me, there almost always is something you haven't thought of. And a good leader wants to know what that is so as not to make a mistake. So think of yourself as being the leader of a team, right? You need a playbook. 
You need to figure out what the plays are, but you also need to see whether there might be plays you haven't thought of that the members of your team could come up with. So what you do when you're playing with this new book is you try to control the clock, not to obey it. You actually use the timer yourself and say, okay, you know, we got 10 minutes. Let's spend two minutes figuring out what we're missing rather than saying, we got 10 minutes, hurry up, let's get this done. You control the clock. You collaborate with people. You find out what everybody else on the team thinks, and you especially solicit thoughts and ideas and discussion from the folks who stay quiet. Because I'll tell you something, the quiet people are also often the thinkers. And if you aren't hearing from them, you're missing a lot. So collaborate. Don't coerce. Don't say, we need to get this done. Anybody else have an idea? Okay, great, fine, let's go commit to something. Don't comply. Say, I'm going to make this be the best it can possibly be. And if your boss says, well, I don't care, just hurry up and get it done. You say, look, I understand your urgency, but we want this to be right, don't we? We don't want this to get screwed up. So don't just say yes to the boss. Say, here's my idea. I want to make sure we do this well and we do this right and we don't have to go back and do it again. The new playbook also says complete something. Don't just continue it. So don't say, okay, we've always done it this way. Let's just do it that way again and keep going. But say, you know, we've done it this way over and over again. And we always seem to have to keep doing it. Maybe there's a way we can get this done so that we don't have to revisit every time. Complete the play. Don't just continue. Improve things. Find a better way to do things. Don't just prove that you've done it. Say, you know... Couldn't we do this better? Couldn't we make people happier? Couldn't we cut our margins? Couldn't we maybe improve the product rather than just proving we've done it? And connect people. Don't just conform to what's being expected or asked of you, but connect things and people. Don't let yourself be driven by stress and urgency unless it is absolutely critical and you're in a crisis and things have to happen. And yet I'll tell you what, I have managed crisis communications. There is almost always time, even just a few minutes to pause and take a deep breath and look around and say, what are we missing? Tell me what else we could do. Pause, even if it's just for 60 seconds, pause, let yourself think and ask questions of the folks who are working with you and for you. Be a leader, not just a determiner, not just a decider, but someone who works with a team to help it be its very best. This is a tougher one though. You really have to, and this only comes with experience, sense when things are starting to go wrong. Some of this, if you're really good at reading body language and people's facial expressions, some of it you will see in your team if you are empathic and aware of people around you, you'll begin to read the signals of folks on your team thinking this isn't going well, people who are afraid to speak up, but who are looking at each other, giving each other the side eye, maybe kind of looking at their watches. That's when you wanna say, what's going on? talk to me. What do we need to do? What are we missing? It is something that only comes with time. Some people are gifted enough to just get this, but for the most part, we all kind of have to learn how to work with people and notice when things are starting to go sideways and pause and fix that. The other most important thing, honestly, is to take a break. 
Call for a break if you're the leader. Ask for one if you're a member of the team, especially if things are starting to get emotional, if people are getting angry or unhappy or feeling stressed and pushed. That is really the time, particularly if you feel pushed, to say, let's take five minutes and just get up and walk around and go outside and breathe and think and come back and revisit this. Honest to God, you cannot believe what a difference it will make. I've been there. I've been in, on teams that had to get things done and just did it, and things went terribly sideways. And I've been on teams with leaders who said, you know, let's not rush this. People make mistakes when they rush, and the difference is enormous. Give your pause a name. You know, there are teams that have specific names. Timeout, coffee break, um, bio break actually works in a place where we use that, meaning go to the bathroom. But of course, bio is everything. It's your whole body. Bio break could be breathe and let more oxygen get to your head. Give your pause a name. Make it a tradition. Make it a ritual that people stop and take a breath and walk around and think because acting without thinking will get you in trouble. After you come back, for, back from the break, whether it's a bio break, a coffee break, a pause, a relief, whatever you want to call it, invite collaboration. This is leadership. And I know, I'm sure there are some of you listening to me right now saying, you know, leadership is getting things done. Yes, it is. It's not just getting things done, though. If you get things done and they're wrong or they're bad or they, they're screwed up, you're not really getting things done because then you have to go back and do it again or fix it. You get things done done by doing them well, and you do them well by making sure every member of your team gets a chance to weigh in. And then you consider what people have to say. You don't just let them talk and then ignore them and do what you wanted to do anyway. One example, going back to the text, is the teamwork that happens at a table when when uh, when the leader of this, this seminar asks, so how much, what percentage of housework do you think men do versus women? and one person starts with a number and then everybody discusses it. No, don't do that. Vote first. So collaborate by valuing everyone's idea. Ask everybody at the table, how many do you think? What do you think the percentage is? What do you think the percentage is? What do you think? And then you vote on those ideas rather than one person coming up with an idea and saying, okay, here's mine, what do you think? And then everybody kind of being driven by that, the first impression thing. Find out what everybody's impressions are. Ask for ideas, be curious, you know? Let your curiosity drive improvement of what you're doing. Don't compel people. Be open. Invite dissent. Wow, what a thought. Actually ask people to tear your argument apart. Say, okay, if I say this to you, then tell me why it's wrong. That actually, of course, you have to be the kind of leader who can listen to that. Not everybody is. But if you are, you will get a team that will work their butts off for you because they know you honor and respect them. And if you're a really good leader, you don't instruct people, you inform them. You say, here's the information that we need to move forward. I wanna hear from you. Does everything work for you? Is this going good? Sorry, that was a binary question. What's working for you? What isn't working? That's what you ask. So vote first and then discuss, be curious, invite dissent. Ask people to pick apart what you just said so that you can find the weaknesses and the flaws in your idea and inform people. Don't instruct them. Don't tell people what to do. Ask them what they know. Discuss. Remember to be non-binary in your question asking. Don't ask, is it safe? Because people will say yes. Very rarely will they say no. 
Instead, ask, how safe is it? Maybe give them a scale, one to five. How safe is it? Get people's thoughts, not just approval of what you think is right. And listen to outliers. If you haven't heard that phrase before, an outlier is essentially someone whose idea lies outside the norm, outside the average. Outliers are people who are a little different. And you know what? Those different people are very often the ones who have just fantastic ideas. Steve Jobs was an outlier. Many people you think of as leaders are outliers. They're the people who come up with something different, who see things a little differently. And if you listen to them, if you figure out why that one person who doesn't seem happy with this decision that you've made and tried to get everybody to do, why they're unhappy, you might find out that there's something you missed that could change, that could make it better. Is there a chance that one person who disagrees with you in the group knows something you don't? There is. Could they have information you don't? They sure could. Nobody's perfect and nobody knows everything. Listen to the outliers. As far as questions go, when you are leading a group or even just when you're in a group, be aware of the things you can do asking questions that basically shut down collaboration and discussion instead of sparking it. Uh, and I'm not going to go into all the details here, but do look up the seven sins of questioning in Leadership as Language, which is on page 118. They're called question stacking. That's one where you ask one question after another, basically trying to push somebody to say what you want. They're leading questions, you know, don't you think this is the right thing to do? They're why questions. Why would you do that? They're dirty questions where you're kind of like telling somebody if they answer wrong, you're going to accuse them of being whatever. Binary questions, yes or no. Self-affirming questions, don't you think I'm right? And aggressive questions where you're really pushing somebody, what's wrong with you? Those are the seven sins of questioning. Familiarize yourself with them. Get to know them. You've probably been on the other side of many of these. Try not to do them yourself. That's it for the podcast. Do remember to write a product description for your company this week. That's your group assignment. And actually, probably several, but if you only have one product for your company, then it's a single product description, but you might have several. Maybe you have some options or colors or different models of a thing. I've uh, uploaded to Blackboard a guideline that comes from a website that creates product descriptions, but don't use that because actually you'll have to pay for it. And anyway, the directions are how to write a catchy product description. Uh, if you want to read all of this stuff on the website, the link is on the bottom, so bottom of each page. Uh, but do just reading the directions will help you and your group put together a product description that isn't just, you know, black jacket with a hood for rainy days, but gets into some evocative language that helps describe your product in a way that will get people wanting to know more and maybe even wanting to try it out. The other thing, and I'm really noticing uh, quite a few of you have not done enough spelling and grammar quizzes. We're getting toward the end of the semester now, so get caught up. If you haven't done 10 at least, because remember the 10 best scores are what will count, then make sure you've done at least 10 spelling and grammar quizzes. That's an easy way to help your grade. Do as many of them as you can. That way you get much better odds of getting a good total on those because then I'll just pick the top 10. So get caught up on the spelling and grammar quizzes. I recommend getting those done now so you don't suddenly find yourself stuck with this stuff at the same time as you're trying to put together the big end of semester projects. That's it. Hope you have a wonderful week. Weather's really been nice. It's a little chilly, but it's sunny and beautiful. Get out in it. Pause. Breathe. Let yourself think. 
and I'll see you next week.